Okay, well, this morning we're continuing in our series called Default. Default is one of those terms that's come particularly prominent in the computer age because um, once upon a time it just meant that default meant that you failed to do something. But for a computer, a default condition is the thing it goes back to when it resets itself. Or it's the thing that it assumes is what you want um, when you haven't told it anything different. Those of you that are familiar with computers will know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are just learning are just learning about that. And you will know that sometimes the default position is not always what you would expect. It might be what the computer expects, but it's sometimes unusual. But we as people also have a default condition. We have a condition that sometimes it gives us certain attitudes to life which can cloud our lives and can affect our lives. And Jesus actually wants to change our settings. He wants to be able to point to a different part of the screen and click the OK button so that we then react differently in certain situations. Now, do you sometimes find yourself judging others? Come on, be honest. Yeah, yes, it does happen, doesn't it? Even I... Even I very, very, very occasionally fall into this trap. In fact, only this week, I was standing on the forecourt of Aachen Station in the snow, feeling slightly judgmental. Now, you might wonder why I was standing on the forecourt of Aachen Station in the middle of this, in the snow. is because Deutsche Bahn, being efficient Germans, can't run a railway. Or rather... It doesn't occur to them that if they're going to run an international train into Belgium, it needs to be the kind of unit that can work with the Belgium electrification system. And so they announced we have a problem with our electric engine. And we aren't going any farther than Aachen. Well, that's after they told us we were stopping at Dura for a replacement train and we got to Aachen. They said, no, you can go and get a bus. And then we're waiting in the forecourt in the snow for a bus to turn up. And by the way, will the Eurostar passengers get on the first bus? And they'd already said that there are 90 Eurostar passengers trying to get to Brussels, and we all know you can't get 90 people on a coach, can't you? Deep joy. And the gentleman was standing there with service written all the way across his bright red cap, and he was whittering away in German, telling nobody what was happening, and plainly not helping much at all. He probably couldn't do a lot. He knew someone somewhere had rung up a coach company, and there was a bus out there in the snow trying to get to us. But I must admit, I was feeling just a tad critical at that moment, especially as my colleague had got on the bus, and I hadn't. Because <laughs> I knew that if I went and took my case to put it in the hold, which is what I had to do, because no, you can't take, no, 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 down. He got a bad saying I speak English. And you had to put your baggage in, and of course they'd open up the hold door on the other side of the bus, so if I'd gone round the back and put my coach in, somebody else without a bag would have snug in and taken any empty seats anyway. And then I'd have had my bag on the coach and me somewhere else, so that wasn't a good idea. To cut a long story short, we did actually get there after three hours down an autobahn um, in the snow at reduced speed. You'll be delighted to hear. We eventually got to Brussels three hours late and um, eventually got on the Eurostar. Now, of course, it was snowing. And as British Rail once remarked, that we can have the wrong kind of snow. Well, this was the same wrong kind of snow that brought certain trains to stand in the 1980s and the same kind of snow that brought Eurostars to a stand in the tunnel just before Christmas. But they were running, but they were only going at 140 miles an hour instead of 180, so that was all right. 
actually sitting at the back, seeing the fine powdery snow being blown up past the power cars, it's no wonder they got it around them. But they shouldn't get it inside, should they? Anyway, you'll be pleased to know Southwest trains run on time. It's funny though, isn't it? You get into a situation like that and your instinct is to grumble and to moan. Someone somewhere had made a boo-boo with the train set that they set aside for that day and then chaos ensued. Of course, I, you know, it's easy to uh, be judgmental, but that's always a strong position to be in when you know you're right. Don't you find this? I mean, I was at a conference this week, um, and I was doing the speaking. One of the advantages of being on the platform is rather like now, I can say what I like within reason, and I'm right by definition, because I'm giving the presentation about what I've done. And I was having a discussion with a chap afterwards, and he, he said... Well, of course, you realise that 95% of people, when they're driving, if they're asked how good a driver they are, 95% of them think they're above average. Well, you are, aren't you? It's mathematically impossible, of course. You can only have 50% above average. But, no, no, 95%, because you're right. It's always the other idiot, isn't it? Yeah. And every day we see signs of our society becoming permeated with a judgmental attitude. Every day we hear about or hear reports from an inquiry or some such thing that's come about because someone has failed or made a mistake. Judgment is made on prime ministers for going to war or social services for failing to stop something they didn't know was happening and so on. And accusations are made with the benefit of hindsight when at the time things may have looked different. There are many cases of course, where investigation must be made and wise judgments ensue. I wonder sometimes whether we've gone overboard. In my day job, I sometimes have to write expert reports for the court about instances where someone's had a crash and is either suing somebody else for compensation, usually the poor old highway authority, or is being prosecuted for an offence that led to the crash. The results of the incident may be fatal, well, they may be just damaged, but in writing my reports, I must be oh so careful to stick to the facts and the evidence available to me in expressing my professional opinion of their significance to help the court. I must not make judgments, unless I've been specifically asked to do so on a particular point, because that is the job of the court. And I have to be especially careful sometimes when writing things which will be published, because they can be misread and misinterpreted by those with the mind to do so. Now, I'm all in favour of a free press, but I do wish that some journalists would listen and not rush to judgment sometimes. A few years ago, there was a spate of articles about new road surfaces that over-exaggerated some risks that some people, including a few policemen, thought were greater than they really were. And I was leading the UK research into the subject at the time, and I was interviewed for radio and for television about it all. I even spent several hours in the freezing cold filming for about 30 seconds of airtime and was interviewed by no lesser personage than Fiona Bruce. But I could tell that things weren't going too, down too well because the journalists had made up their mind that there was an angle or something was being hidden. And all that I was saying gave a different message, that there might be a small problem that hadn't been proved yet, and even if it was, it wouldn't be the disaster that they wanted it to be for their story. Which didn't stop the bead broadcasting a programme which, although technically accurate in the words that they used still by subtle emphasis and selective editing, left 
the impression in the viewers' minds that there really was something going on. Two years later, when my team published two detailed analytical reports about the reality of the situation, there was an absolute deafening silence from the technical press because the message was there isn't actually a problem, or if it is, it really isn't that great. Have you ever been on the receiving end of a judgmental attitude? I have. It ain't nice. Wounds can take a very long time to heal if ever they do. Now let me be clear. Judgment is not pointing out in love to someone what's wrong. That can, if done properly, be helpful. But the little phrase, in love, is not an excuse for concealing a judgmental spirit. Judgment is when you speak or look from a distance and have no compassion and you secretly enjoy the failure of of another person. Like a singer that looks like they can't sing. This is going to be a laugh. Or perhaps you appoint yourself to be the watchdog of what's right or wrong in somebody else's life. Your standards should be my standards. But resorting to a judgmental and a critical attitude is so easy to do because it deflects responsibility from us, away from us, onto other people. And it can so easily become our default position that it poisons our lives. And what is the antidote to such a poison, I wonder? Well, to find out, we're going to look at a passage in the Bible, a situation that Jesus was in and a story that he told. The story is going to be familiar to many of you, but I'm going to read it anyway. It was written down for us by Dr. Luke, a great friend of St. Paul, and Luke probably heard it from some of Jesus' friends who were there at the time. And if you've got your Bibles with you, you can find the passage in Luke's Gospel and chapter 15. I'm going to read the beginning of the chapter and then move on to verse 11. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered round to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus went on to tell them some stories. And Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring that fattened calf 
and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. While he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave, never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Picture the scene. There are three kinds of people in this story. There's Jesus, himself the teacher, and gathered around him listening are the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes. And Luke tells us that the third group, who, as it happens, were powerful groups of religious leaders, were standing by, muttering to one another. They were the judgmental ones, and they were judging on two accounts. The tax collectors, who were collaborators with the hated Romans, were the object of criticism by all the people. No one likes paying taxes, but they made their money by overcharging and other underhand means, so they were even less popular. But they were human. In fact, one of them, Levi, who we know better as Matthew, was one of Jesus' close friends. But the sinners were all sorts of people who were social outcasts that no one wanted anything to do with them. They may have been minor or petty criminals, prostitutes, others whom society would have nothing to do with. And what was happening... Jesus was talking to them. And it had even been reported and seen that Jesus had eaten with them. And in that society, eating with someone was a mark of friendship and respect. So the Pharisees were making their judgments on both the people around them and particularly on Jesus. And as we read the stories in the Gospels, we find that throughout his ministry, Jesus saves his harshest words for the Pharisees. Why? Precisely because of his judgmental attitude towards everyone and anyone who did not follow their strict view of the world or religious rules. Having a default position that is always judgmental, frankly, is sick and sad. And we must avoid such an attitude or we are going to fall into the same trap as the Pharisees. This is something that confessed Christians have done in the past and I rather suspect still do. We all know the stereotype that we see on our television screens and other ways that portray Christians as fanatical and judging, looking down on others who don't keep up to their standards, always being critical. If a Christian stands up and says something is wrong, then they're judged for it. But sometimes 
there are Christians who spend their lives being judgmental, living in such a way and implying such a way that others are wrong and they are right. Holier than thou is the expression we hear used. Just like the Pharisees were, in fact. Now, you don't have tendencies like that, do you? Now, Jesus told the story that we know as the story of the prodigal son in response to just this judgmental kind of attitude. The story is as much about the older son as it is about the younger one and his father. The older son is resentful. It was unusual for a younger son to be given his inheritance ahead of his father's death. But he knew that his would be the greater part. In fact, the ratio could be as much as two-thirds to the older son and one-third to the younger son. And he knew it would come to him eventually. Indeed, as his father said, all that I have is yours. But still he resents the fact that his brother has been received back. He complains that while his brother has been away, he has been working his socks off with not so much as an offer of a cheap goat for a party. Never mind the fatted calf, a cheap goat would have done. Of course, he could have asked, and I have no doubt that the loving father would have given him a goat for a party. But no, 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 the expectation was, I should deserve it, therefore it will be given to me. And he, well, look at him. He's been over there, he's squandered all that money, he's got up to I know not what, and now he's come back and you've... Oh, this chronic complaining and resentment feed a judgmental spirit. If you complain about stuff, you will look about more things to complain about. And it gets inside you. So how do we counter it? Well, the father goes out to ask the older son in to join the party. Jesus says that he goes out to plead with him. He obviously knew what reaction he was likely to receive. And he received it an aggressive response. He's critical of his brother's behaviour, which may well have been justified. I mean, he didn't do exactly the right thing, did he? But he's also critical of his father's response. And in fact, he even insults his father by just not referring to him by name, not calling him father, whereas his brother had been genuinely repentant. But the father's response, and this is where our model lies, was gentle but firm. He called him my child. The word translated as son is a softer form of the Greek, meaning my child. But he also points out that the party is going to go on anyway. You've got a choice. You can come in. He wasn't loved any the less, but he was the loser from his own attitude. You know, there was another occasion when Jesus was talking to some questioning individuals and he was asked what the greatest commandment was. And Jesus replied by asking the question of what he thought. And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. To which Jesus responded, there was another equally great commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Which led on to another question and another story, the story of the Good Samaritan. Another tale of judgment and wrong actions. 
with the right action coming from the least expected area. But the point is this, that Jesus has a very simple instruction to us as his followers. Our first responsibility is to love God and to love others. Never mind everything else. Those are the greatest commands. They are the ones that Jesus has endorsed. Love God, love others. And a spirit of judgmentalism goes directly against this. Trying to love somebody when you're criticizing them and looking for fault, the two do not work. They will not mesh. Now, Jesus himself was judged. It would seem as though a couple of years later the Pharisees got their way and they had him strung up on a cross. But he still found a way to love people rather than judge them. In a few minutes we'll be sharing communion together. We'll be remembering what Jesus did on the cross. Even then, he was being judged by the Pharisees. They were mocking him. Save yourself! And by the thief next to him. He was still able to be responding in love to both John and to Mary when he asked them to look after each other. To the other thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, he said. This should be our aim, to take time to learn to be like Jesus and find a way to love others rather than judging So to conclude, we need to remember this morning that loving God and loving people is God's number one commandment for us. We have a choice to make from an attitude of judgment, a default position that we really should not be in, to choose love. Choose love over judgment. To stop gossiping and judging others and love people instead, in other words. Now, of course, this is very easy to say and a great deal more difficult to do. But we don't want the factory default. We want God to change our settings so the default position is not judgment but love. And this is how it happens. It happens when we open our hearts and our minds to the Holy Spirit and we become changed. We allow him into our lives to change us from the inside. We cannot do it by willpower alone. It needs God to change us. As St. Paul put it, and this is the the verses that are underpinning the whole of this series, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. God has told us this simple thing. Don't judge. Love. That's his will for all of us and all parts of our lives. But let's not be afraid to seek his spirit to come even more closely within us and to change us from judges into lovers. Amen.